Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Iterated function systems are a method of constructing fractals, constructing fractals. The resulting constructions are always self-similar. What are you doing? I'm trying to write a schoolhouse rock song to help kids learn about iterated function systems. When you're a little kid, you know, sometimes it's easier to really get these concepts if they're in a catchy song. I'm not a kid, and I still don't get what your song is about. It's not complicated. It's an algorithmic model that can mathematically describe certain plants and leaves and ferns by virtue of the self-similarity, which often occurs in branching structures in nature. Wait. It's an algorithmic model that can mathematically describe certain plants, leaves, and fur. No, that's too sentimental. I sort of know what you mean. I still can't recite the alphabet unless I go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A. What is that? It's the alphabet. You know, all the letters. Never heard of it. Sounds like set theory. Have I played my Goodell's Incompleteness Theorem song for you? No consistent system of axioms is capable of proving all truths about the relations of natural numbers. You need a simpler concept. You know, it is way harder to write these songs than you might think. Today on the show, Bob Duro tells us how a jazz great became more famous for Conjunction Junction. And now, the guy who wrote When Does a Quantum System Stop Existing as a Superposition of States and Become One or the Other, the Schrodinger's Cat Song, Colin McEnroe. You're about to meet a guy named Bob Duro, but in a way, you already know him, probably. He's really two or three Bob Duros. There's the Bob Duro who's wrote, written a lot of fabulous jazz songs. A lot of them turned into standards. There's the Bob Duro who's a performer. He's going to be performing here very soon. And then there's the Bob Duro who is the musical mastermind behind Schoolhouse Rock. If you were born around 1965 or so, uh, that probably made a huge imprint on you. We're going to talk to all three Bob Duros. They live inside one body. But before we even let Bob say a word, uh, let's have him sing a few words. Uh, This is uh, Bob doing a Jimmy McHugh, a Frank Lesser tune. This is the definitive version of this song, by the way, if you're from the Smithsonian and you're trying to figure out uh, which one to use. This is I Get the Neck of the Chicken. I get the neck of the chicken I get the rumble seat ride I get the leaky umbrella Everyone shoves me aside When I wake up each day with the dawn Sure as fate, I'm too late And all the hot water's gone I get the neck of the chicken I get the hand-me-down tie I get the cock in the kitchen I get the small piece of pie That's why I can't, I can't get over This dream come true Now 
If I had get the next chicken, how did I ever get you? All right, that's Bob DeRoe uh, singing uh, a fabulous song from the past. Bob DeRoe, first of all, welcome to our airwaves. Well, thank you very much, Colin. I'm happy to be here this morning. Uh, the occasion for this conversation is that on September 18th, uh, that's a Thursday, you're going to be performing in Bloomfield. We'll tell people more about this as the conversation goes along. Uh, but I want us to sort of walk through some of this amazing life, which, uh, if I, you don't mind me telling them, spans about 90 years. Part of the story seems to begin, you can correct me if I'm wrong, you're a young guy from Texas, uh, you move up to New York City, you're playing the piano in a Times Square tap dance studio when somehow or other Sugar Ray Robinson, not necessarily the guy you would expect to launch somebody's musical career, but Sugar uh, Ray Robinson appears on your radar screen because, do I have this right? He sort of wanted to take a break from boxing and be a song and dance guy? Yeah, he was learning tap dance routines with his partner. The two of them did a dance that Henry Letang, famous choreographer and tap teacher, And, you know, I used to do a little gig at the studio. I'd go drop in, and he'd let me play a class, and I'd make $5 cash. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess I took the job with Sugar Ray for two years, and it was, in a way, my first salaried position. (laughs) Yeah, so you you became the show's music director. You're traveling all over the place. I have to ask you, was Sugar Ray—I mean, he he was a great boxer. Was he any good at this other thing? Well, he had that timing, you know, that that does count. Yeah, he could tap. Yeah. And his partner was a, an old vaudevillian who uh, got a great comic and what we would call a hoofer. You know, he had the natural talent that comes with that life. Could but he... Sugar Ray did his part, and of course he was a handsome dude and and loved the ladies and all that. <laughs> um, I'm sure there are stories you could tell, but you're uh, far too great a gentleman to tell them now. Did he sing as part of this? Was he singing? Yeah, they had a couple of novelty songs, mm. <laughs> and I used to I used to say to Ray, "Let me be on the show," but he he didn't quite buy my uh, act yet. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't going to let you uh, upstage him or sing anyway. Well, so and now uh, this show traveled around the world, and somehow or other, you wound up in Paris, right, in the nineteen fifties. Yeah, I wanted to quit the gig, but he said, "No, we're going to Paris this summer, man. Come on, hang on." So in nineteen fifty four, we sailed across the Atlantic on the. Ile de France, first class, baby. <laughs> and so you're in, in, you're there. And was it there that you met and started to work with Blossom Deary? That's where I met her. Yes, we did a little work together in a vocal group she had founded, which later became kind of famous. But she called it the Blue Stars, and we recorded actually four tracks. And one of them was Lullaby of Birdland en Français. <laughs> I want to hear that. Blossom and I were the only Americans, and the other six were those great Parisian singers we came to know later quite a bit. All right. Well, we're going to sort of fast forward in time musically, but since we're talking about Blossom Deary and we're talking to Bob Durow, uh let's uh, hear Blossom Deary sing a little bit of the Bob Durow and David Frischberg composition, I'm Hip. Cause I'm here. 
That's a song written much, much later after your Paris days. But it's a great song that kind of makes fun of a whole bunch of jazz cliches or at least makes fun of a certain kind of person uh, who tries to be maybe hipper than everybody else. And uh, do you remember much about how you and Frischberg came up with that idea? Well, Dave and I used to get together and try to write pop songs of some kind. We wanted to make some money. (laughs) (laughs) Two starving jazz men. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, you know, nothing seemed to happen in that levels. But one day he gave me that lyric. And, of course, the words all have to be attributed to Dave Frischberg. He's quite a wit. And he said, I can't do anything with this. See what you think. And I took it home. And over the weekend, I fashioned a melody to fit the words. And little did we ever guess that Blossom would do it. Well, every, a lot you know, of a lot of people do it, and and a lot of people do it, and they do it different ways. And I mean, one of the things that I love is that the song has been performed for so many years. There's a line in it where the singer says, "I'm on top of every trend," uh, and then the rhyme is, uh, well, "She Bobby uh, she sings Bobby Darren knows my friend." But as as life has changed, as time has changed, I think when Frischberg does it, he he says, "Sammy Davis knows my friend." I think when Mel Torme does it, he says, "John Travolta knows my friend." <laughs> Because you can't make fun of a certain kind of—I mean, depending on who you are, you can't sort of make fun. You have to pick somebody else to make fun of that relationship about, right? I said Bob Dylan knows my friend. <laughs> so it's it's a malleable song. Um, well, I want to sort of go back to the the early stirrings of you as a jazz performer and jazz writer. At some point or other, you wound up back in the states and were. Did you? I don't know. Just one day, say, look, I'm I'm going to be a jazz recording artist. I'm going to be a jazz performer. I mean, how did you? Which day? Yeah. Which decade did you mention? Well, I'm 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 about to lead up to you doing uh, singing some words over Yardbird Suite, the Charlie Parker uh, tune. Um, so so sort of heading into that part of your career, and sort of how did you get from Paris to there? <laughs> well, you know, I I loved New York City, and I was only in France uh, eight months, I mm-hmm. think, and then I was kind of homesick, so I came back and. You know, I'd been singing every night in the Mars Club, which is where Blossom came to hear me first. I knew her name, and we met there, the Mars Club. And I thought I was hot stuff. And I went back to New York, and I was ready to kick him, <laughs> kick him dead, singing and playing the piano. And, you know, I got a few gigs. But finally, uh, one of my agent friends took me to Bethlehem, and I got a record date. So I started planning for the recording session. In those days, you know, we recorded right directly to the uh, two-track tape. And, uh, you know, you had to be prepared and well rehearsed. So I had my band rehearsing every day, and uh, and one of the songs I wanted to do was Yardbird Suite. 
Now, I had heard uh, Annie Ross and Eddie Jefferson and King Pleasure doing these things. We call them vocalese Mm -hmm. now, where you put lyrics to jazz recordings. So I thought, well, I was really struck down when Charlie Parker died in March of 1955, and my recording date was in uh, October of 1956. So in that interim, I decided I would try one of the vocaleses, and I wrote this lyric to Yardbird Suite, kind of the story of Charlie Parker's life. All right, let's hear a little bit of Bob Duro's version of Yardbird Suite. Hey, jazz fans. I sing this song hoping you'll all find out The man who wrote the Yardbird Suite Leave you no doubt, tell you about Charles Yardbird Parker was his name The facts, he carved his fame in history A sax for his axe His improvisation was miraculous Mastermind of rhythm was he He blew notes that nobody'd ever heard before Till then, blooms they'd never been So often true as genius seems to do He suffered his life through But gave us to the Arbor Suite All because he never stopped blowing When he had the miserable woes He seemed to pour out his horn And make each person listen and feel That he never known what being low down could be He knew that low and happy music Going to set him free he blew and blew and blew until he had the changes, had the sound, he had them long before we heard him. He was just a boy in Kansas City, so pretty. After he came to New York town, all of the local jazz were listening in admiration. All right, I, I hate to feed that, but then we won't get to talk if we don't do that. So anyway, that's a little bit of Yardbird Suite. Well, Bob DeRoe, one a lot of things happened as a result of that. But one of the things that happened as a result of that is that Miles Davis heard it. And liked it, and I don't. I didn't know Miles Davis. You you knew Miles Davis. My sense of Miles Davis was that he's he seems like a fairly terrifying figure, and and, and the, who who either likes things or doesn't like things, and so it's a pretty great thing if he likes it, right? Yeah, he was terrified, terrifying. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, I used to hear him in the Apple here in New York, and and you couldn't speak with him. He he didn't want to meet any fans or anything like that. He would just split. When his set was over, or when his, even when his solo was over, he'd go walking out of the club, let the other guys <laughs> blow a while, so you couldn't really get close to him. But in L.A. a few years later, I'd say it was in the uh, late 50s, after my uh, LP was out, Devil May Care on Bethlehem, my first and only recording at that time, uh, we had a mutual friend, and she told me that Miles came to visit her and saw the album on the shelf and said, what's that? Who's that? She said, that's my buddy, Bob Duro. He writes songs and sings and plays the piano. So she said he listened to the whole album. So I said, we got to go to the gig tonight. <laughs> I took her to a hot nightclub in L.A. where Miles was playing with his sextet. And, and uh, instead of saying, oh, I loved your album, Bob. <laughs> uh, happy to meet you, Bob Duro. He he said, Bob, go up and sing Baltimore Oreo. So he, he drug me up to his bandstand <laughs> and made me sing a song with the rhythm section. And I did, and we sort of became pals, and I used to sing for him at parties and things like that. And I guess he kind of dug it. <laughs> he not only dug it, but he really wanted to work with you and record with you. And, and I mean, the odd thing is... 
for the most part, we don't associate Miles Davis with liking anybody singing very much. It's sometimes said that you're the only person who ever sang on a Miles Davis recording. I'm not sure that's exactly true, but it's damn close to true. That yeah, that's he... one of my credit lines. <laughs> the only one. <laughs> so that's a very odd thing. So th- this started with the song Blue Christmas, right? Yes, he was going to be on a uh, composite Christmas album for Columbia Records, and you know, I guess he didn't want to play Jingle Bells or White Christmas or any of those. So I said, Bob, write me a Christmas song, and you're going to sing it. (laughs) So I got fired up, and I did it in about two weeks. I wrote the song, that is. And, you know, thinking about his his whole uh, attitude and everything, I thought I'd dwell on the over-commercialized part of Christmas that we go through each year. So uh, so that was one of the collaborations, but the other one, the other vocal that, uh, that we know of is um, the song Nothing Like You. Uh, let's hear a little bit of Bob Duro and Miles Davis. This is Nothing Like You. Nothing like you has ever been seen before. Nothing like you existed in days of yore. Never were lips so kissable. Never were eyes so bright. I can't believe it's possible that you bring me such delight. Nothing can match the rapture of your embrace. Nothing can catch the magic that's in your face. You're like a dream come true, something completely new. Nothing like you has ever been seen before. Nothing like you, nothing like you has ever been mine before. Kisses I've known, but so. Did writing, uh, first of all, we should say Bob Duro, you wrote that, I think you wrote that with Fran Landisman, do I have that right? Yes, that was her lyric and my melody. Miles Davis is, uh, as we say, a terrifying and august presence. Uh, I was terrified that day. <laughs> yeah. Is it scary to bring a song to him and say, here, I've written this, I want to do it? I mean, how do you even do that with Miles Davis? Well, as far as that goes, I, as I said, I used to sing for him at parties. He would always say, sing me a song, and he'd just listen. And, of course, I sang Nothing Like You. So when we recorded Blue Xmas, which was to come out in 1962 on the uh, Columbia Jingle Bell Jazz, uh, he said, let's do that other song. He was speaking to the arranger, the great Gil Evans, who was there at our warm-up session. And Gil arranged Nothing Like You. And, I, you know, I thought, well, this certainly doesn't fit the Christmas album. I guess it's just a kind of an experiment. And, you know, we did one take through all the way, nothing like you, which you heard some of just now. But uh, four years later, he first, I don't know why, but he just threw it on a different album called The Sorcerer, which by now was a different band for Miles. And do you feel as though you, you got to know Miles Davis? I mean, do you know him? Uh, you got to know him as a person, as a friend? Yes, I saw different facets of his life. I mean, there were times when I'd go to his house in New York City, and he'd cook, you know, he'd cook, or we'd listen to music. And uh, there were other times when he'd see me in the village walking around at night, you know, around the gate and the bitter end down there. And he'd say, Bob, he'd pull up in his Ferrari or something and say, Bob, give me $20. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, I dug him so much that if I had 20, I'd lay it on him and he'd drive away. <laughs> so I knew him in all his different aspects. 
later on we drifted apart because he got so famous and internationally uh, famous that uh, you know he changed his phone number a lot and changed his women quite a bit and got a lot of bad habits and all that so and I got busy with my other life you know <laughs> well let's talk uh, speaking about your other life uh, we're gonna grab a break here but as we go into that break I, I should say that I mean I've been a Bob Duro fan for a really long time I was very excited to find out he's coming here September 18th we're gonna tell you in just a second where and how to get tickets to that but I also thought I knew quite a bit about Bob Duro and as I was researching and getting ready for this show it turns out there's songs and uh, as I said at the beginning of the conversation, you already know Bob Duro. You just don't know it. There's songs that I love that I just didn't know you wrote. So, uh, and one of them is uh, I've just I've got just about everything. Now I happen to like and listen to a lot the Tuck and Patty version of this. But as we go out, let's hear uh, Tony Bennett. Probably has the more epic uh, version of I've got just about everything. I've got just about everything that I need To make this life that I lead an enjoyable thing I've got bluebirds and posies and robins and rosies All kinds of flowers that bloom, all kinds of birds that sing I've got just about everything that I want To make this earth that I walk a miraculous place I've got fresh air and sunshine and mountains and may wine and what is really a boon. I love the human race when I say just about, just about, just about everything. I mean, I must admit, one thing is really missing. Well, I'm not complaining with or without it. I've still got what I got. But you could better my lot with some of your hugging and kissing. That's what I'm missing. Just say those words that I long to hear you say. And then my life We're talking to Bob Durow. Uh, it's now time to uh, say exactly where and how you can see Bob Durow. Thursday, September 18th. This is the Metropolitan Learning Center on Blue Hills Avenue in Bloomfield. He's coming here to do a benefit. I think there's a family member connection here. But he's uh, coming here to do a benefit. Uh, it's... Um, to help a program, I think, that's through CREC, uh, and it uh, benefits uh, Metropolitan Learning Center students participating in international field studies. If you want to get tickets, uh, actually, you should just check out the CREC website. That's C-R-E-C dot org. And if you really want uh, to get specific, it's slash foundation slash South Africa dot PHP. You're never going to remember all that. Just get on the CREC website, and they'll be able to help you out. 7 p.m., Metropolitan Learning Center, Blue Hills Avenue, Bloomfield, Bob DeRoe. That's where you're going to hear this man, and he really absolutely is in every possible respect a legend. So, um, Bob, uh, I'm a huge fan of yours. And as I said at the beginning, I, I think uh, your version of I Get the Neck of the Chicken is the one the Smithsonian should uh, embrace <laughs> as the definitive version of that Jimmy McHugh and uh, Frank Lesser tune. However, I don't think anybody ever called your voice the Velvet Fog. You know, that was Mel Torme. <laughs> no. but, so you, but you have a way of singing, right? I mean, I, I hope I can say it. You don't have a beautiful singing voice. I, I once asked Mel Torme a question which I think he found vaguely annoying, which was if you weren't Mel Torme, if you didn't sound like Mel Torme, who would you like to sound like? And he thought about that for a while. And he said, well, really, Bing Crosby. Uh, if I could sound like Bing Crosby, that would be great. Um, <laughs> if you could sound like anybody you wanted to, would you just sound like yourself? Or would you like to have one of those beautiful vocal instruments? <laughs> well, no, I'm happy being myself. And, you know, I'd say I'm a 
a jazz man who sings. And uh, I got my inspiration from all the horn players like Louis Armstrong, Jack Teagarden, and the piano players like uh, Nat King Cole and uh, Joe Mooney. And, uh, you know, just the idea that even though you're not a vocal uh, major or a whiz of any kind, you, you know about music and phrasing. And if you've got a sense of English and the poetry of our wonderful songs, you can put them over. Just put them over <laughs> and swing it. Yeah, the uh, critic Gary Giddens uh, writing about you in The Village Voice says, he can interpret a lyric as though it were an anecdote. Um, and some of that is the key, right? Uh, I, I got another piece in Downbeat by, I think, Scott Albin saying, as always, DeRoe sang songs with meaningful, sophisticated, or witty lyrics and interpreted them in his one-of-a-kind, non-pariah manner. His voice is not powerful, but he is totally re- a relaxed, uninhibited vocalist. Uh, he goes on to talk about your various kinds of delivery. But a lot of that, too, I think um, the jazz singer Mark Murphy says, if you want to learn how to sing, go sit next to the drummer. That, you know, one of the things that sing- singers may underemphasize is kind of understanding the relationship of the words they're singing, the music they're singing, to the rhythm. And one of the things you seem very keyed into, I mean, you couldn't have done Yardbird Suite if you weren't, is that idea of rhythm and phrasing. I, I don't know if there's more that you can actually say about that. No, I'd say that's it, rhythm and phrasing. And, uh, and you know, each each night it might change a little bit, just on your own feelings, the way you're feeling, feeling more happy, more swingy, more sad. You do different things. And I guess that's what jazz singing is, just living it each time. Well, let's talk about the other phase of uh, your career, or at least the, we talked about the songwriter. We're going to come back to the songwriter. We've talked about the performer. We've got to talk about the third Bob Durow, and that uh, is the schoolhouse rock Bob Durow. This all began, if I understand it correctly, Bob. Uh, you were actually making a little bit of extra money working, uh, writing some uh, advertising music, and you had a boss whose kids couldn't learn their multiplication tables. Do I have that right? That's about right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, his... He was a great man, very intelligent and uh, cultured. And uh, he said, uh, my kids can't memorize it. Let's put it to rock music. We'll call it multiplication rock. Now, this was only meant to be a phonograph record in, I'd say, of 1970. I met David B. McCall, and uh, he commissioned me more or less to write uh, songs about the numbers so I chose for my first attempt three, and I thought, well, three is a magic number, and then I did a little research, and that also took me about two weeks <laughs> to uh, satisfy myself, and I made a demo and took it to him and his colleagues in the ad agency, and they have all flipped out, and suddenly I was their man. <laughs> <laughs> Write more, he said, and, you know, he, he provided the money. We recorded them all. And it was indeed a phonograph record. And uh, the art director in this particular uh, advertising company was a very talented gentleman also. And he uh, he animated Three is a Magic Number, and they wound up selling it to the ABC TV network. And blam, suddenly I was on television, <laughs> although only uh, the sound, not the visual. You know, I could tune in the cartoons myself to hear me singing. <laughs> and, and so how many years did that go for? Well, our first run 
was on Saturday and sometimes Sunday mornings uh, for 13 years, from 1973 to 1986. Then there was a hiatus, and it came back a little bit in the 90s. And, uh, you know, I was able to employ a lot of my jazz people. Some of my friends have said, Bob, you didn't write Schoolhouse Rock, you wrote Schoolhouse Jazz. <laughs> well, that is kind of true. Actually, um, everybody, we should say, every, there's songs that everybody knows, everybody who grew up with this knows, and and uh, we'll talk about those in just a second. Um, he's already mentioned one of them, Three is the Magic Number. I picked one just because uh, a different, cause it's a different song, and maybe you don't know it quite as well, and it does uh, have one of Bob's uh, jazz friends, as he just said. This is a uh, uh, the great drummer and vocalist uh, Grady Tate uh, singing a song called I Got Six. I got six. That's all there is. Six times one is six. One times six. He got six. I put mine with his and we got twelve. Six times two is twelve. Two times six. I got six, you got six, she got six. We got 18 all together, if we can get them all together. Six times three is 18, three times six. I got six in my right hand, six in my left hand, six on my head. You got six in your pocket, put them all on the floor, that's 24. Six times four is 24, four times six. I got six red hens, they laid five eggs each. All the eggs hatched out in the yard was full of 30 little chicks. Actually, I said Grady Tate. That sounds more like you, Bob. <laughs> oh, he's a great singer and one of the most recorded drummers in the Apple in those days. Great Grady Tate. And so let's the, the impact of this is such that I'm sure on September 18th, when you're in Bloomfield, people are going to want to sing Conjunction Junction, What's Your Function? Uh, which, and I've seen uh, at least video of gigs where, where you, you let them at least uh, sing that chorus with you. But it seems, as like, it seems as though people in the audience, they know the whole song, right? It seems it's pretty well known. And teachers use the DVD nowadays and in their classrooms, you know, just to illustrate grammar and uh, multiplication and even science and history. We you, had four subjects when we went into animation. People have such warm feelings, I think, for something that is part of their childhood, too. I mean, you must get that from audiences. I don't know. Maybe you get it in airports, although I don't know how anybody would know it was you. Uh, but, but I mean, yep, I've got it in airports, even. Yeah. It's true. And, you know, lots of young people come up to me and say, you know, I couldn't have made it through school without your songs. Or, you know, I learned the preamble. <laughs> I sang it, and the teacher said, no, recite it. I can't do it if I don't sing it. <laughs> we the people. <laughs> and I think part of it is also that, you know, culture that doesn't talk down to kids uh, works so much better. I mean, th there was a sophistication to this. It was written by, by people like you. It was performed by people like Grady Tate and other, you know, just full-fledged, top-of-the-line jazz musicians. There's something about the music that it, it's, it's not simplistic at all. And, and I think that helps a lot, too. I think kids like it if you treat them as, as more fully functioning mental entities. I must say that McCall actually added a line about don't write down Apparently, he had attempted to get what he wanted from other jingle writers, and, and they didn't get that. They uh, they were just doing simple stuff that 
they thought kids couldn't handle anything sophisticated. I attempted to get a lot of variety in the whole oeuvre, the whole work of Schoolhouse Rock. Was it possible for you to balance your adult songwriting with this? I mean, Schoolhouse Rock, pretty demanding schedule, also a particular kind of writing. Did you just keep on writing adult jazz songs at the same time? Yes, well, you know, in the 60s, there was a, it was a little bit slow for me as a jazz singer and jazz musician. So uh, that's how I got into other things. I produced albums for Spanky and Our Gang. I did some arranging for the Fugs. I was out there in the in the popular world, the uh, sort of offbeat, beatnik world. And uh, so I was ready for Schoolhouse Rock. But uh, along in the 70s, after we were firmly ensconced on Saturday morning television cartoons, uh, I began to get more work, more interest in my type of singing. And, of course, that always stimulates you to write more songs and learn more songs. So I did. I lived a balanced life there. And I always had to make sure if I took a job in Paris, I'd have to make sure I wasn't going to miss a recording date for Schoolhouse Rock. <laughs> this is this makes gives me a renewed appreciation for Spanky and our gang, too, which I, I also actually thought they were pretty good. I'm, I'm, not, I'm sort of not surprised to find out that Bob Durow was doing some work for them. I want to sort of maybe shift back a little bit towards uh, some of your more adult and, and jazz songwriting uh, and talk about the way certain songs of yours have become standards, have become songs that a lot of people uh, like to perform. And so um, just to pick one of them, and uh, it was hard to pick one of them. There are so many uh, terrific ones. And uh, we didn't even get a chance to talk about the Tony Bennett version. I've got just about everything. Maybe we can come back to that. So a song that a lot of people do is a ballad called Small Day Tomorrow. I could have picked, uh, you know, 18 different versions of it. This is one by Irene Crowell doing Small Day Tomorrow. That's the kind of song that'll get in your head and haunt you. Yes, uh, Irene, Irene Crowell. Yeah, and <laughs> she and, was my first, uh, you know, my first real singer to do my songs. She she did so many of my songs. Nowadays, a lot of people sing this song, and and you know, I just got just about everything. Nothing like you. I'm hip. 
but uh, she was first in that style of hearing your song sung by another singer is a great feeling. Well, you know, I want to ask you about that, too. I mean, your songs are recorded by all kinds of people. Um, Do you have a a way of thinking about what makes a good singer, what makes a good interpreter of a song, whether it's your song or somebody else's? But obviously, you'd be so close to your own song. What makes an interpretation of a song work or not work? Well, I guess every songwriter is listening very closely when they first (laughs) listen to a uh, another person singing their song. You want to know if the pitches are good, if the melody is there, and if the words come out right. To me, that's the criteria, uh, good good musical pitch and uh, rhythm, and also making sense out of the lyric. There's something else, though, too, and it's it's a thing that probably doesn't have a word, right? I mean, five other singers could sing that same song and get the pitch and the melody right and not screw up the words. But that's that version by Irene Kraut, I mean, it really breaks your heart. There's something about it. And it's a, it's got that it, you know, that, that nobody has the words for, right? There, there's some other yeah, thing. We, we can't define it, can we, Colin? No, we can't. It's That's something. Are there other singers in particular that you absolutely love or love to have sing a Bob DeRoe tune? Well, yes, I love uh, Carol Fredette. I love Rosanna Vitro. And uh, let's see, I don't think Mark ever got around to doing one of my songs, but he was certainly a great singer. Uh, Even, uh, you know, J.D. Walter has done a couple of my songs. He's one of the more modern, far-out singers. And uh, Jamie Cullum, who made quite a splash in America, the English uh, young man, pianist and singer, recorded uh, two or three of my songs, Devil May Care and uh, But For Now, and uh, I loved it. Oh, in the next segment. There is Diana Krall, you know, who did Devil May Care. We're actually going to play that in the final segment. Well, I've got that in in reserve, Bob. So um, so we're talking to Bob Durow right now. We probably should take a little break, uh, so we'll have time for our third and final segment. Let's take that break, uh, and we'll be back with more of Bob. I've got a small day tomorrow. A small day tomorrow. Past participle, are you the form of a verb? Typically ending in ed in English that is used in forming perfect and passive tenses and sometimes as an adjective. This is not nearly as catchy as conjunction junction. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Britt Hill. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ornette Coleman. For show pages, articles, and audio of the Faith Middleton Show staff singing their song, Hey Kids, Let's Make a Red Wine Reduction, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, 50 years after the Warren Commission, we're still arguing about the JFK assassination. And now... Back to Colin. We're talking to Bob Durow. Uh He's had an amazing career. He's performing uh, in uh, in Bloomfield on September 18th at the Metropolitan Learning Center on Blue Hills Avenue. You get your tickets through crec.org. That's C-R-E-C dot org. It starts at uh, 7 p.m. Uh, he, is, he has crossed paths with all kinds of people. I'm not even going to have time, Bob, to ask you about Lenny Bruce, but I know you did perform with him uh, out in L.A. Uh, I'm sure that that's, there's an hour, hour's worth of stories um, 
right there. I want to quickly tell, say, you know, the other reason that you're an inspiration is that you are, I think, 90 years old. You're going to be touring Germany later this year. Do you have any sort of tips for the rest of us? How, how do you get to be Bob Duro? How do you get to be a jazz <laughs> performer internationally on tour at the age of 90? What, what, are, what are your secrets? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I'm a lazy Southern guy. I was born in Arkansas and raised in Texas, and I got a late start in the show business, and and so I'm playing it to the hilt. Since I got a late start, I might as well keep going as long as I can get on the airplane. <laughs> I feel like also, I mean, having talked to Dave Brubeck uh, when he was 88, you know, when you, which is, of course, a very important age for a piano player, 88, some <laughs> music kind of keeps you, I feel like, you know, if if you love your music and you can play your music and perform your music, I, that must ha- that must sort of keep you alive and vital at a time like this in your life, too. The music has got to help somehow, right? It does, and it keeps your brain uh, always active. Uh, we're always thinking about intervals and chords and melodies and things. So uh, and musicians tend to be kind of relaxed as far as the general public goes. I'd say just take it easy <laughs> and stay on the uh, beam, stay on the beam. All right, uh, let's uh, hear, uh, since we already teased it out here, Diana Krall uh, doing one of Bob DeRoe's classics. This is a little bit of Devil May Care. No cares for me, I'm happy as I can be. I've learned to love and to live. Devil May Care. No cares woes, whatever comes later goes. That's how I'll take and I'll give devil may care. When the day is through, I suffer no regrets. I know that he who frets loses the night. For only a fool thinks he can't hold back the dawn. He who is wise never tries to revise what's past and gone. All right, that's Diana Krall uh, singing Devil May Care. Bob, uh, songs, uh, when you write a song, it must sort of be like a child, right? You know, it's, you produce this thing and you, you have some love for it. Do you have songs that you, I, I, just to pick a song and we're not going to have time to play it, but one of your songs is this tune called There's Never Been a Day, which I really think is an incredibly beautiful song. I, I looked around, I found a few nice versions of it. There's a young woman named Maud Hickson who does a very uh, lovely version of it. Ah, uh, yeah, but Maud. I don't know. Why isn't that song sung by a hundred different people? Uh, do you ever look at a song and go, <laughs> one of your songs that you love and say, why aren't you more famous? How come, how come people don't? <laughs> Don't grab this song and, and, and go with it. I do. I wonder sometimes why I don't have a real big hit. <laughs> well, you but do. Songwriters, songwriters have to wait, you know. It's funny, but the years go by, and uh, sometimes you look in your trunk, and you suddenly find a song that you wrote a long time ago, and no one's ever done it, and you whip it out, and it could become a hit. A lot of songwriters have had that wonderful experience of just suddenly getting a hit out of nowhere <laughs> for no reason at all. 
It's a lottery. It's a lottery. <laughs> it's a lottery. Well, and, and I mean, another thing that you've done is continue to work with uh, younger performers, too, uh, particularly Nellie Mackay. I know you've been uh, doing stuff with. And one of the CDs I'm dying to get my hands on is this duets CD where you, you work with her and a, a bunch of other people on some of your uh, classic songs. But one nice thing is that people like Nellie Mackay come along anyway, and they keep these songs, these jazz standards alive so that a new generation of people kind of get the whole idiom, right? Yeah, she's great. She's wonderful. <laughs> and a heck of a songwriter herself. Well, Bob, uh, it's been so terrific to talk to you and to try to learn from you how to live a life to be 90 and be playing in Germany and playing in Bloomfield on September 18th. And it's been an an honor for me to talk to you. I do want to just ask you, so uh, on Thursday night, September 18th in Bloomfield, do you know already what your set is? Do you know what songs you'll sing or will it it depend on the mood of of the room and how many people want to hear some schoolhouse rock songs? Well, I I tend to be generous with my audience. If I do get a request, I'll probably try to throw it in. Of course, it's mostly going to be schoolhouse rock, but I've advertised myself as schoolhouse rock and all that jazz. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I'll probably do a couple of my jazz standards. And uh, I didn't decide yet. I usually get the feel of the room and the audience and uh, the mood of the moment to make up my programs, although, uh, you know, if I have a large group with me or something, I have to be a little more strict about planning what to do because you're dealing with uh, music for different instruments and things like that. I'll be playing solo on the 18th, so uh, I'll have a free hand. I can just go this way or that, whichever suits me at the moment. <laughs> We're uh, going to go out here with a Bob DeRose song that I dug up today that I did not know. It sounds to me like it's from the distant past. It doesn't sound like anything like any of the other songs that we've uh, played here so far. It's called Dog, and it's uh, Bob. You're almost kind of speaking, uh, it's almost like poetry over music a little bit from the perspective was, of a dog. It was a jazz and poetry album, yeah. So I don't know if you want to say anything about it before we start playing. Well, the poem is by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and, uh, you know, this is in the days of the beat poets and all those, and I took part in a recording in Los Angeles called Jazz Canto, and uh, I did some of my songs that weren't really jazz poetry, they were just songs that I wrote to the poetry of the great Langston Hughes, but this is what I would call is jazz and poetry, where I planned a background and recited the poem. Well, Bob Duro, great to talk to you, and let's go out with let's dog. Go out with the dog. Let's go out with the dog. The dog trots freely in the street and sees reality, and the things he sees are bigger than himself, and the things he sees are his reality. Drunks in doorways, moons on trees. The dog trots freely through the street and the things he sees are smaller than himself. Fish on newsprint, ants in holes, chickens in Chinatown windows, their heads a block away. The dog trots freely in the street and the things he smells, smells something like himself. The dog trots freely in the street past puddles and babies, cats and cigars, pool rooms and policemen. He doesn't hate cops, he merely has no use for them. And he goes past them, past the dead cows hung up whole in front of the San Francisco meat market. 
would rather eat a tender cow than a tough policeman, though either might do. He goes past the Romeo Ravioli factory, past Cotts Tower, past Congressman Doyle. He's afraid of Cotts Tower, but he's not afraid of Congressman Doyle, although what he hears is very discouraging. Very depressing, very absurd. To a sad young dog like himself, to a serious dog like himself. But he has his own free world to live in, his own fleas to eat. He will not be muzzled. Congressman Doyle is just another fire hydrant to him. in the street and has his own dog's life to live and to think about and to reflect upon touching and tasting and testing everything investigating everything without benefit of perjury a real realist with a real tale to tell and a real tale to tell it with a real live barking democratic dog engaged in real free enterprise with something to say about ontology, something to say about reality, and how to see it, and how to hear it, with his head cocked sideways at street corners as if he is just about to have his picture taken for Victor Records. Listening for his master's voice looking like a living question mark into the great gramophone of puzzling existence with its wondrous hollow horn. Quantum physics, so easy. If you, um, if, forget it. 